0: Neon One makes software solutions specifically built for nonprofits. You can finally have your donor management, fundraising software, program management, and nonprofit operations all in one place. Learn how Neon One can help your nonprofit create long-lasting relationships by visiting neonone.com/backslash. We are for good.
1: Hey, I'm John, and I'm Becky, and this is the We Are For Good podcast.
0: Nonprofits are faced with more challenges to accomplish their missions and the growing pressure to do more, raise more, and be more for the causes that improve our world.
1: We're here to learn with you from some of the best in the industry, bringing the most innovative ideas, inspirational stories, all to create an impact uprising.
0: So welcome to the good community. We're nonprofit professionals, philanthropists, world changers, and rabid fans who are striving to bring a little more goodness into the world.
1: So let's get started. Becky, what's
0: happening? Oh my gosh. So excited for this conversation. If you are here today, pat yourself on the back because you're about to get a peek behind the curtain of what is actually happening on the forefront of our sector right now. And you are going to be in the know, my friend.
1: Yep. And if you have not heard about it yet, you're about to hear about it because it's about to be everywhere. The Generosity Crisis is this incredible book that's coming out. We have the co authors on the podcast today. One is a repeat guest, one is a new friend in the house. But let me tell you a little bit about these guys. We have Nathan Chappelle and Brian Crimmins with us. Nathan, you know him. He's been on the podcast. He's a thought leader, a public speaker, a writer. He's one of the world's foremost experts in the intersection between AI and philanthropy. He serves as the senior VP of donor search, leading the research and development efforts dedicated to leveraging artificial intelligence to help nonprofits. I mean, he came in the house and talked about this before everybody was talking about it. And that's the same today with this conversation. Let me tell you a little bit about Brian. He is a global leader in corporate purpose. He's the creator of 100, which is the world's first coalition of marketing agencies united for sustainable change. So, really, this meeting of the minds today these guys, you know, when you write a book, this is what always blows my mind. You have to think so far ahead. And it's like, just to be a thought leader, to write about what's happening in the moment is one level, but to be able to write about that, to have the idea, to have the brain power, to see the trends that with enough time to go through the publishing process, it really blows my mind that the generosity crisis is coming out today. When so many of us are looking ahead and saying what's happening in our sector. And we're looking for hope. We're looking for what is the right next step? And these guys have really put together a piece that I think is going to serve all of us today and at least point us in a really healthy direction. And so it is a huge honor to have you in our house today, guys. Welcome to the podcast.
2: Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for thanks for having us. It's always great spending time with you, Becky and John.
1: Well, it's good to see you. And we got to see Nathan in person since the last time we had this conversation on the podcast, which is really fun too. But I want to give space just for y'all to give a little bit of your context, a little bit of your story, What wired you to want to pour into this work? You know, now your book is on Fifth Avenue at Barnes and Noble, you know, on the front lines leading these conversations. What brought y'all to this place today?
2: Brian and I come to this from kind of different lenses, too. But, you know, I spent 20 years in the trenches fundraising. So started out, never intended to, but started out kind of as that, you know, bright eyed, bushy tailed fundraiser back in 2000. And, you know, and I guess I, you know, throughout my career. you know, as I kind of moved up the ladder, it was always, you know, this idea of like, you know, what are we doing that's innovative? What are we doing that we can, um, we can generate more, you know, revenue. And it was always just about this idea of like how to build a better mousetrap. And, and later on in my career, we were realizing it was getting harder and harder. Like there's just this idea, like no matter what we were doing, we're trying to hire our way out of these, the situation of the shrinking pool of donors. We didn't even know that at the time. Like we didn't really know that we were, this this kind of macro view is going on that less people were giving and and uh, at a certain point we kind of figured it out and we're like what's what's going on here and it was really around 2010 when the giving pledge was signed that we had this hypothesis of like you know one of two things is going to happen it's either going to inspire more generosity like never before since well since Rockefeller and Carnegie really you know were were out there and Becky your whole series on the history of philanthropy was awesome so people oh, need to thanks. listen to that if they want to, they want to hear about uh, about that? But since that time, there hadn't been as much media and attention around giving. And so all of a sudden, you know, the giving pledge gets signed. There's a lot of excitement. But, you know, at that point, I think in 2012, I did a, a study on the evolution of mega gifts. And it was this analysis of, you know, well, what what's actually going to happen? Is it going to inspire more philanthropy or is it going to fill... Essentially, a leaky bucket, and what we now commonly know as you know the crowding out effect. Um, and so, Brian and I met, gosh, years ago, uh, working on a fundraising project, a pretty large scale fundraising project, and it was kind of love at first sight. You know, we started talking about <laughs> it was, like you guys, like love at first sight. Like every time I come to New York, we're like, you know, let's get a drink, and then we would sit there for like hours and talk about you know what's going on in our industry and why aren't people talking about these things, and so. I mean, jokingly, probably for a few years, we're like, yeah, someone needs to write about this. Like, what's going on? It's getting harder for nonprofits or, you know, the, most people don't even, you know, it wasn't in vogue at all to talk about this decrease in donors um, up until recently. And so, I mean, even for a while, we, we tried to get other people to write the book because I don't, I can't speak, <laughs> Brian can speak for himself. I never really viewed myself as a writer. I mean, it, it was sheer out of this, like, almost burden of like someone needs to do this and we tried to encourage other people to do it and no one stepped up so we kind of decided about a year and a half ago to jump in and you know work work through things and brian can talk more about his experience but we see things very differently brian is an extremely macro view of of the world and and the changing definition of philanthropy and he works a lot big corporations and i'm more boots on the ground of the traditional nonprofit that you know, I I was in the seat of for so long. And so that balance between like, you know, the struggle of the everyday nonprofit, but then also, you know, from a consumer side of like how they're viewing philanthropy. So things are changing. And uh, and we think it all came together pretty well in the book.
3: And that was a great tee up. And, and Becky and John, thanks for, for having me as the new kid in this conversation here. <laughs> um, as you mentioned, I, I'm the head of 100, but also have been I saw the vision for 100 as working at Changing Our World, where I've been the CEO for the last 12 or 13 years, but I started there as an intern. And when I joined Changing Our World, I was right away struck by the fact that we worked on both, or a lot of sides of the social impact aisle, meaning helping nonprofits, helping corporations, foundations, and that whole almost 360 view of things, I just was always fascinated by. And I was always trying to constantly learn and read and understand what was happening. And then, as Nathan said, you meet, you got the opportunity to meet somebody like Nathan, and he called it going out for a drink and you know spending a few hours. I called it a front row seat to a master class of really learning from somebody who <laughs> is like one of the smartest people I've met in our sector. And uh, you know, as he said, about a year and a half ago, we just started cranking. You know, once a week for an hour, an hour and a half, every just hammering it away. And and Becca, you said it in the beginning, and I would argue, and Nathan, it'd be interesting. But you know, the book I thought we were writing when we first sat down was not where we ended up. In a good way, I think. I think once we established what the crisis was, we quickly were thinking about ways out of this. And so, although the title is one thing, it's really a book of serious hope and, and positivity. And I hope people under, you know, will pick that up from uh, when they get a chance to read it as well.
0: Well, it's an extraordinary book, but even beyond the book, it's an extraordinary concept. And what's looming on the horizon, I think the way that we can view it and the way that that we react to what's on the horizon is going to really project the future that we're going to live in. And I want to thank you both for taking the time to write it. I mean, John, it sounds like us. We were looking for we are for good (laughs) type of community forever, and we... You just sometimes have to build the dang thing. So I want to tee you up to talk about this generosity crisis because we're seeing it on the back end on our side as well. And it, it, this is a competition for connection, and you talk about that. And and we're talking about not just how to thrive, but friends, we're talking about survival here. And there are ways not to just survive but thrive in it because the gener the generosity market is in decline. But we think that there are very intentional and hopeful, to your point, Brian, ways of getting into this moment. And, and we want you to talk about the moment for a second. And I'm going to pitch this to you, Brian, first. Talk about the current state of philanthropy in America as we're starting to dive into the generosity crisis. Where are we today really looking at it you know, in the fall of
3: 2022? Yeah, thanks, Becky. Uh, well, Needless to say, um, we're, we're living in a period of time right now with, with inflation at the highest point it's been in 39, 40 years. And if you look back at the last time we were in a situation like this, it didn't spell well for philanthropy, meaning it was a 9% drop from 72 to, to 75 when we were in a very quote unquote similar situation. And we're on the heels today of, as you said, of the last 12 years or so of the generosity market, the, the giving, the traditional giving to nonprofits already under stress and already hit with a you know a line downward. And it really, you can draw a line in the sand from the 08 financial crisis where people, yeah. what well, we said internally at Changing Our World, we had people had a depressionary mindset of a recessionary period. 08 came so fast and so deep. When people lose 40 and 50, 60% of their net worth in a month, you take a it, you something happens to you psychologically. And I'm a big believer in that. Put it, That started people reevaluating. And it has not gotten any better, and so here we are today with now other economic environments not helping our case. Um, but that's where we are. But I'm, um, you know, but that's okay, and that's the reality. And I think part of a challenge, any challenge, personal or professional, as Nathan was saying earlier, is first admitting we have one, and now let's get on with the conversation of how do we see our way out of this.
1: I mean, I, I love that you kind of set the tone, and you. At the beginning, said this book is about hope. I felt that. You know, I've not even gotten to read the whole thing, but in kind of working through different aspects of it, I'm like, I do see hope. And I think that's the posture we all have to have at this point, because just going down this cycle of this looming black cloud that's headed toward us is not helping anybody. Correct. So I wonder if you'd talk about, you know, how can we really change course and bring about a different, more connected future? Like, let's lean into this moment and use connection to like kind of bridge to this next step.
2: So, um, Arthur Brooks, uh, which we were just so honored, um, we actually approached him about the concept of this book, and and he right away just emailed Brian back and was like, "Sure, I'll, I'll write a testimonial." And was kind of excited because he he started talking about this idea, um, the change in giving behaviors about you know twenty years ago, and he wrote a book called "Who Really Cares" and when a lot more people were giving than they are now, and and this is kind of a follow up to that book, but really his, his more modern day work that he, he publishes with the Atlantic is really around love. And it's really around this idea of people connecting with people. And and there is a thing that he put in the New York Times that, you know, the United States is facing a crisis of love. And, you know, the, the good, sweet part of that, you know, when we're going to talk about connection is that, you know, the definition of philanthropy is for the love of mankind. It has nothing to do with money. It has to do with you know, bringing people together to do things that neither could do on their own. And and so when we think about this from, from of course, we need to bring awareness to this idea that less people are engaging in why and and get into that and, and try to right-size some of that. But at the end of the day, what we propose in the book is what nonprofits already know. It's what they've known forever. And for somehow over the, and you talk about this in so many of your podcasts, because I'm a rabid fan. And Um, is that the pendulum has swung so much, you know, to the side of, you know, automation and technology at any, you know, to, to just reduce friction and to automate. And, and as someone who works in technology, I mean, technology could be a powerful, you know, conduit to helping foster connection, but too often, and probably for too long, it's been used to just streamline things and to replace the relationship to, to gain revenue, and so really this idea that our, our book is a book of hope, it really is. It's this idea that we had to come up with a new word for connection. It's, it's no longer about affiliation or association or connection. We had to come up with a new term that was just like got us back to the roots and we call it radical connection because it, it can't be the type of connection where I know you or you know me we have to go back to the, what nonprofits have always done, which is this really close community of people that know each other. And so we provide a framework in the book. We really, this is probably the most fun um, at least for me part when we were writing the book is uh, we had this brainstorming session of like, what does that even mean? Like what does radical connection mean compared to just like things that like I buy from a store uh, versus I talk about this brand to all of my friends. Like Patagonia is a great example, which we talk about in the book. So um, we built out this really great framework to really hopefully challenge nonprofit professionals and actually anyone that cares about connection to think about like, you know, the fact that my connection is a limited quantity. Like I can't have a radical connection with everyone I meet. I have to be very selective. It's probably my most valuable commodity as a human. So I need to think about where I invest that that energy and the time and in the ways that's going to make the biggest impact or that's going to make me feel good. Um, and, and so on. So it really goes from both sides, the nonprofit side and the, the donor side of rethinking what people take for granted now, which is just we're living in this world and we just succumb to all the messaging and messages that we get all day long every day, to let's be intentional about who we're connecting with and let's go in deep together.
0: Wow. I mean, so many thoughts about that, Nathan, because we've seen that play out in so many ways, not just within our community, but in many movements that are rising online. And I I just got to give you guys like a huge attaboy for saying this, for calling this out, for even talking about the mindset work and the psychology, because Brian, you're exactly right. We have to get out of that poverty mentality because this is not just about, you know, we, we say community is everything. It's our final core value of our company. But you're right, there is a difference between a donor and a believer. And we believe believers are so much more powerful. And these are radical connections that we think you already have within your missions. Because believers are going to show up in different ways. Donors are going to give, and we need them and we need those gifts. But believers are going to give, plus they're going to open network, plus they're going to fundraise, plus they're going to tell story, plus, plus, plus. And so you think about a believer and a compounding effect, and you pair that with this radical connection. And I think the difference that we're seeing, and I would love to get your feedback on this, is that there's so much authenticity and there's so much trust and a radical connection, people are willing to do more. They're willing to go further. They're willing to really put themselves out there. And I think that that is the great harbinger that's going to unlock this potential that's sitting before us and really fight back against this decline that we see. I mean, that was a shocking stat that 75% of Americans gave, you know, in 2006. And now we're at 49.6. They're giving less and we're connected more. It's just absolutely confounding.
3: Yeah. So I, you know, you talked about the uh putting yourself out there. Uh so in the book I put myself out there a bit to talk about um I'm a massive, massive fan of Pearl Jam, the band, and as
2: Nathan knows. An I-
0: album is one of my favorites, Brian. We can geek out about this later in yes, any
2: better weave, weave it into every every comment. <laughs> Everything. But-
3: you know, when I've been talking to friends of mine about the book, I use that as the jumping off point to describe what we mean by radical connection, because they go, Oh yeah. You, you know, obsessed might be another word. Um, but, <laughs> but what they do and they put out, you know, as you said about a believer is I'm there. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm there before it even comes out. Right. And, and if they're doing, and they do a fair amount of fundraising for something, I'm, I'm, there. I'm, I'm there. There's a community like you were talking about earlier. And so you, um, one thing we talk about in the book as well, and, and we I hope this comes out of a good place, not a, you know, they're the enemy, but corporations and brands uh, have have been for a long time now very, very skilled at knowing us and helping us to know them. And to Nathan's point earlier about the two-way street, uh, Patagonia, we've referenced a few different times, but they're not the only ones. You think of the Ben and Jerry's. I mean, there's some wonderful examples, some of which we touch on in the book. And they know, though, they know you know, the buttons to push. And I mean that in a very, hopefully, authentic and meaningful way. They know how to have us, you know, stand up and spread the word and be influencers on behalf of their their brand. Now, hopefully, they're doing some really good work in society as well. But when you factor that in, Becky, to your point about the comment you made, which is so spot on, which is we're more connected than ever, but somehow we're sort of less connected to the to the nonprofit community. That's okay as part of, like, admitting what's happening here. I mean, we're there's a confluence of activity. I, I just... Gave a speech last week, and in preparing for it, I realized in doing some research that we now, as human beings, have the attention span that equates to eight point two five seconds. Oh jeez. and it's actually eight behind seconds. seconds. I believe it. It's four seconds less into humming than hummingbirds. Well, it's funny you should say that. We're actually we actually are now behind goldfish we have longer attention spans <laughs> than them oh, no. um, and, no. and 10 years ago it was 4 seconds longer so my point it's it's also going down so when you you understand we're just not paying attention as much anymore we're getting bombarded by information we have the nonprofit the hope is I, that once nonprofits understand this and actually start you know nathan loves to say you know more is not more less is more you know making sure we're, we're making sure we're building that believer community I'm I'm actually pumped about what's going to happen the reignitement of this we just have to be aware of what's happening and operate a little differently.
1: Okay, I'm so glad you went there because I think that's a part of your book that really jumped off the page to me because I hate to use the word existential but I love that in this term like when I was reading this I was like you're really sh- painting a picture that when the corporate side is getting so good at playing our own deck back to us playing the values, having storytelling, knowing, creating belonging, the things that we should be putting central in how we show up, there really is an existential threat to our mission because people feel like they're being altruistic by supporting that. Like they don't think about the difference or maybe understand how the impact would be different. And so there's like this conundrum there and it does feel like the right time to, and you said this, Brian, we don't want to like Push that away. We need to like step into that, and so I want y'all to have a chance to reflect on that. I think it's such a powerful thing that you're lifting.
2: I think being in the nonprofit sector for 20 years, I kind of grew up in this idea that that more was better, you know, and and that it was just about continuing to fill, you know, fill the pipeline, fill the pipeline at almost at any cost, and and that cost was the relationships. Really, you get to a point where you can't you can't foster authentic relationships with endless number of people, and so. This idea, you know, we know this intuitively. This is what, what needs to be a just a giant wake up call in our industry. We know this intuitively that a single donor, you know, has, you know, a lifetime value of what, $131 or whatever it is. But a lifetime, if we're looking at a lifetime value of a better donor that stays with you, that you are able to foster that relationship. That it's, it's like 15 to 16 times that. So we know this, we know this to be true. Like, you know, in, in direct response world they absolutely, they, that's one of their key metrics. But for some reason, we haven't been able to get away from this idea of just trying to to hit a certain revenue goal at any cost. And we essentially tried to mold donors into our calendars and into our, you know, kind of framework. And so, you know, this whole idea, you know, of this book and around Radical Connection is, again, um, it's getting to know people more intimately. And, you know, having worked at a I worked at a cancer hospital, as you know, that was a hundred year old tuberculosis hospital that essentially put itself out of business, which is the goal of every nonprofit, by by the way. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, And so they did. So there's tremendous pride that they fulfilled their mission and they reinvented themselves and they hope to reinvent themselves. And again, when cancer is cured. And so this, this idea that we, we talk about this and share some stories in the book and some fictional characters, but based on, you know, real stories from the past, City of Hope used to be a place where community would gather and they'd come together. And like, we literally have donors that met each other in high school because that's where they volunteered and there was a dance and they met each other and got married and, and they passed that legacy on to their kids and, and so on. So all of this that we're talking about is so inherent to, to nonprofits. They know how to do this. Um, they just don't, they they've kind of bought this idea that more is better and they have to step away um, and realize that you know more is not better, better is better, that they you know dive in deep and get to know their constituents at a more intimate level. And to Brian's point, there's a lot of tips to take from the for-profit community on getting to know people, using technology to essentially drive that personalization at scale, because the technology does exist that allows you to foster that connection. Um, but we, we tend to live in a very bifurcated way in, in fundraising. It's either all or nothing.
3: And, and John, building off that, the the ultimate aha as we were writing the book was coming down the home stretch of the book. The Edelman Trust Barometer came out, and companies were more trusted than nonprofits. Now they sort of took the moral high ground, you know, through their messaging and their 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 um, shared values orientation because they know they're believers to use your word back. They know how to radically connect with those that they know will be with them. And so once they've done that, they are really good at establishing that shared values where you think you can't live without them. Again, that's another <clears throat> subject for another day. But I was talking to somebody inside my parent company, uh, Omnicom the other day, and I was talking about this very topic and he very naturally, almost scarily having been in the nonprofit business for as long as I have said, oh, I mean, I would trust corporates over nonprofits any day of the week. And Wow. I mean, talk about a wake-up call. Now, the point I want to make, because that is a topic in and of itself, but John, where you went originally, I am a massive believer in, because I see it every day with our teams, when not-for-profits, brands, companies work with nonprofits in a very authentic partnership. Wow. One plus one equals not three, five. And that's the message I want people to understand. Corporates have a lot of good that they can bring, and they some of them are bringing, but they don't know everything. And they don't know- you know, on the ground, the last mile, feeding, they don't know that. And nor if they, if it was worth knowing, they'd be in the business of doing so, right? Nonprofits are in our society for a reason. And they need to respect one another and work together because when they do, wow, I actually think it's part and parcel of one of the ways out of the generosity crisis.
0: Taking a quick pause from today's episode to thank our sponsor, who also happens to be one of our favorite companies, Virtuous. You know we believe everyone matters, and we've witnessed the greatest philanthropic movements happen when you both see and activate donors at every level. And Virtuous is the platform to help you do just that. It's so much more than a nonprofit CRM. Virtuous helps charities reimagine generosity through responsive fundraising, volunteer management, and online giving. And we love it because this approach builds trust and loyalty through personalized engagement. Sounds like Virtuous might be a fit for your organization. Learn more today at virtuous.org or follow the link in our show notes.
1: Hey friends, meet our newest partner, Evolve Giving Group. Evolve is a women-owned and women-led full-service nonprofit consulting firm where nonprofits come to thrive.
0: We love our friends at Evolve because they provide a people-first approach to fundraising consulting. And here's just a couple reasons we think you should partner with Evolve's talented fundraising team.
1: We love that they meet you where you're at, from working with startups to 100-year-old legacy organizations. They've really done it all.
0: And they're here to help you from start to finish. Evolve guides your nonprofit from idea to implementation so you can spend your valuable time serving your organization and community.
1: Their consultants have literally been in your shoes. They've worked in house themselves and understand the unique challenges nonprofit professionals face.
0: So reach out to explore ways Evolve can partner with your nonprofit. They're here to help you reach your fundraising goals without losing any sleep. Learn more at EvolveGivingGroup.com and be sure to tell them we are for good sent you. I've got to jump in here real quick because I, I, I want to live something that John wrote. just this fantastic um, thought leadership piece this week that really ties into to this component. And it will it, be the hill that I go to die on right now as I want to talk to nonprofits right now. The way to combat this, the way to lean into this moment is one, you have to stop being the best kept secret. This is not a compliment any longer. You need to boldly step out, talk about who you are, your values, tether your story, your staff, your humanity back to those values. The way that we tell our stories has got to be incredibly vulnerable and human because when we show our flaws, the people that are on the other end, whether that's a believer, a lurker, somebody who's just keeping an eye on us, there's, oh, that's not that's not a mission that's a human back there and we're working with the human one to one and it's going to take us stepping into the discomfort and we're also seeing this trend as well and i love that you guys have brought it up that giving is identity you know and people want to be connected to that and they also want to have accountability to their mission and i think the trust piece is is something that we're going to have to dive into on this podcast of understanding why our donors, our believers are not trusting us. And so, um, and also, Nathan, thanks for raising City of Hope. We just love that mission. I want to say hi to Sarah and John. They're in our community, and it's just such a great nonprofit. And I think the reimagining who you are is a growth mindset sort of skill that we may have come for this, but if the world's evolved, how are we evolving? How are we evolving our messaging? How are we involving par- partnerships? And so, I mean, Brian, I want to ask you this question. And I kind of teased it a little bit before, but talk to us about giving in times of crises. We're hearing this a lot in our community right now. People are seeing the economic downturn coming. You talked about inflation. We don't want to revisit of 08 in terms of what it does to the sector. Talk to us about how nonprofits can be prepared and what you're seeing with giving Mm -hmm. in times of crises. And Nathan, jump in here too, if you have some data on it.
3: Well, you know, great, great, very timely. Obviously, unfortunately, so, but timely question. Um, I think where you were were a few minutes ago, Becky, is spot on. I mean, I think you got to look at make not every nonprofit should make sure that they're putting their stories out. They're putting the personality, the humility, the vulnerability, all those points. I would absolutely check. Yes, absolutely. I was nodding emphatically as you were going through them. I think the thing that we saw even during the early days of COVID is do not take for granted if you're a nonprofit what your lurkers, donors, or believers know about you, get out, get out, Like, make sure they know what you want them to know about you. And, and, and again, this is where that shared value thing becomes really interesting. If you know that they're very interested in a certain aspect, make sure you're telling them how you're evolving that, or in the last six months, how that has become even more critical to your mission. Don't assume they know back to that eight seconds of being able to retain information attention span. And then the last thing I would say is, is, um, If you had the time, it doesn't take a lot of time. I'm a massive believer in reaching out to them, reaching out to everybody, meaning do surveys. Like, what don't you know about them? Because it's amazing what people will tell you. engage, engage,
0: engage. Yes,
3: yes. So, Becky, I I guess I should have said that. You said it better than I've said. Engage. Absolutely. Now, in times of crisis, run to the problem. Don't run away from it. Run to people. Engage. More is more in that sense. Go talk. Explain. Figure, I mean, I loved in the early days of COVID how many people were doing fireside chats with the heads of the organizations and they were talking to more people than they've ever spoken to, even when they would go on rubber chicken dinner tours or do anything like, like, don't lose that those good things we learned about how to do during COVID in, in a time like this as well.
2: Uh, you know, from a data perspective, I would say the financial crisis or, you know, this inflationary period, whatever we're calling it, comes at a really bad time. Right. So, I mean, I, after the pandemic and of course it related, but there was so much resilience that people learned about through the, the pandemic in terms of getting creative. And we saw, you know, some winners and losers in in that, you know, throughout that time, the winners really figured out, I mean, not to, we're so tired of the word pivot, but one of the best examples we saw for like, I mean, a a Catholic church, they just were not ready to bring people in and, and do video streaming and all this stuff had priests just go out and meet with people. Like some of the best stories that we saw of building community were completely unconventional and almost, you know, hundreds of years old ideas, like just go out in the streets and meet with people in authentic ways. And and for the organizations that I've either worked with or consulted with that did well, they got creative, right? They, they got creative. Now this crisis is a little bit different because financial crises, you know, we're already seeing retention drop massively. So like, we're, you know, those one-time donors are paying for gas and they're paying for, um, you know, food and, and all those other things that we, we see, we feel every day. It's going to be a really challenging time. I think you have to invest in the long haul. You know, we know this when I worked at UC San Diego, I did a study, that 25 largest gifts of any year those people had been with us for 18 years. They'll be with you throughout this. There will be another season. Invest in the relationship now, and it will pay off later. But you have to get away from short-term thinking and really, really adopt this idea that you're building the framework, or you're building the pipeline of the future. Those people will stay with you. They Every single time, they will stay with you, and especially if you're with them during a time of crisis, if you come alongside and you, you're empathetic you really prove that when you told them it was about partnership, not about money, that that will be tested. And, and the time that you prove that is through those challenging times when they're nervous and they don't have as much money and, you know, they, they, they will remember that you were with them, walking with them arm in arm throughout that period. So this is a long game. Like this, like we, we have to get away from these annual goals, you know, and it's hard, right. Cause you gotta, you know, keep the lights on, but, You've got to be thinking about this, you know, from a much more sustainable way. I would say the reason why we're in a crisis to begin with is because we've treated philanthropy as a transaction. We've treated donors like ATMs. And, you know, this is the time actually that will prove those that know how to do this well will walk across this much better on the other side. And they're going to be so much better off.
1: Can you just feel us fist bumping over here? I mean, preach, fellas. This is so good. (laughs) And aligns with just the values that we really started We Are For Good to have these kind of conversations. So it just feels really like this moment is rife for this. So I just, you know, everything you've said, how do we start to like socialize this? Because we're there with you and thought partners. Like we gotta play the long game. We got to pour into belonging. We got to figure out connection also at scale, like you know, to figure out how to do that and have radical connection at scale. But Talk to me about how you bring a leader along with this because they do have annual goals and they may have limited thinking of like, they're just trying to make meet payroll in the next few months. How do you kind of champion that? And how do you talk about it with leaders?
2: Uh, I'll only give two things and Brian will have some other ideas as well. You know, for me, it starts with awareness. I mean, there's too many leaders that are afraid of this conversation and honestly like have decided to avoid it at all costs. It's just, they won't admit that, they, that things are getting harder, and you know any any business that has a negative trajectory of sixteen percent over twenty years, we modeled this out. The horrifying statistic when we modeled this out is that like giving ends in forty nine years if nothing changes. So avoiding this conversation, it's horrifying. Like any business that looks at a negative trajectory, if it goes indefinitely without any intervention, will not end well. Our our industry is not healthy. Our leaders need to realize that. They need to embrace that. They need to be willing to talk about it and brainstorm and come together. That's what's unique about the nonprofit sector. 20 years ago when I got in the nonprofit sector, I had no idea how unique it was that I could go to anyone and they would be a friend and a colleague and a mentor. And we could learn together even when we were, quote, unquote, you know, competitors. So I think awareness is number one. People need to be willing to talk about it and just spark conversation. What does generosity mean, you know, to them and to their community? And then two, I mean, from a more practical tactical side, you know, there has to be conversation about what sustainable philanthropy means because hitting annual goals and putting donors into our calendars is not donor centric. It's not in their best interest. But when we, and we talk about this, we talk about like the levers of retention, um, you know, as being really the, the motivation of success for a gift officer. I mean, it's just it we we all know this. I, I'm just preaching to the choir, but those leaders have to fight for this. Those leaders that that report to a hospital CEO or they report to a, a dean or a chancellor of a university, they have to fight for this. They 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 have to change the the paradigm of how they're measured, how success is measured, and focus on building you know, building a pipeline that is going to stay with you for a longer period of time.
3: Yeah. And I'll just quickly add one thing, which is well, actually two things. One is thank you for because what you said. I mean, thank you for helping us get, continue to spark the conversation and everything we can, the sector can continue to do to raise what Nathan said, that awareness. I think that's half the battle. The group that I feel like we have to figure out how this conversation gets to them is the board members of nonprofits, because ultimately there's two things I think about when I think about board members. One is, Not all of them, but many of them are in that world, the business world that Nathan referred to. If this was happening to their business, they wouldn't be sitting back. That's number one. Number two, they're the ones, let's be honest, who can give the air cover for changing the rules and changing the – like to the development team. So if this conversation – and I don't think it's going to. If it stays just in the development side, the development aspect of nonprofits – We'll make progress if we can get it out beyond that. I think we'll make real, real progress, and that's not a knock on development professionals. People I've worked with for twenty years. We need the board. We need leaders to understand what's happening in our sector. Most, if it's the if it's a certain type of board, they have the fiduciary responsibility anyway. They need to provide the air cover, the rethinking, the roadmap to give their CEOs, their leaderships, their development teams the room they need to start doing things differently.
0: You are so right. Thank you for boldly stepping out there and saying it because we're seeing this evolution from management. To leadership happen, and nonprofit leaders are having to make a choice at this fork in the road. Am I going to operate business as usual? Are we going to look at this as not only leading people and missions differently? And you're exactly right, Brian. We have to start, specifically, leaders. If you're listening right now, making the business case for why we need to be moving and evolving in this way to our board. You know, I I know there are bean counters on there, and we love them. We love our Being counters, but we have to talk about the data and the data of where it's moving and how. We're going to affect change. And I think that this is a big conversation that's not had just in the C-suite. This is something that's going to have to involve not only talking to our people on the front lines, and I'm talking about service providers and program managers and people that are actually interfacing. It's, It's about talking to your donors. And I think what you said about engagement in times of crises, heck, we need to be engaging All the time. That needs to be our MO every single day. Talking, asking questions, surveying, polling, gathering story. Everything is going to inform our next move. I'm here for this evolution because every time you put one of those touch points out, that radical connection that you guys are talking about is further cemented. And so I want to move to To talking about that radical connection because we were so geeked out to see this in your book because we see this as one of the great underpinnings of success moving into 2023. So talk to us about the case for nonprofits to establish these radical connections with their constituents and how can we start building stronger relationships? Nathan, I'm going to start with you.
2: You know, not surprising, I'll start from a data perspective. You know, we started quantifying connection using machine learning years ago, to, in 2017, actually, it's crazy, it's been five years. And I will say that we know more about the motivations of giving, you know, when we talk about all the things that are going wrong, you know, in our industry right now, we know more about the motivations of giving than we've ever known in history. And so we get down to the 10th decimal point in a 1000 variables of like, why are really why are people connected to us? And I had this idea one day, and I and I, um, I it was like 5 a.m. and I, our data team always knows it's going to be an interesting day at 5 a.m. When I'm texting them, I'm like, I have an idea, <laughs> but I never thought about this really until not long ago, where I thought, well, if we're quantifying um, connection of donors using machine learning, not using their wealth, but just truly like based on you know them being engaged, those people would stay with us for a longer period of time. Like essentially, the people that we're predicting. That are going to give again or make a first gift if it's based on connection are going to be the better donors. And as it turns out, so we do this full huge analysis on five and a half billion dollars in transactions, and you know we're doing thirty million predictions a month now. I mean it's just like crazy. <laughs> yeah. And as it turns out, people that are are quantified or are measured based on their connection retain at seventy percent, and in the in the top half of our file, in the top quartile of our file, they retain at eighty one percent. So it's a fun, it's literally, you've, I think Becky said this on a podcast the other day, and I love the term. It's like, we flip the pyramid, right? So we're not just trying to fill this like leaky bucket down at the bottom and be like, just, you know, one-time gifts at any cost. Like, wow, if we could measure, which we can, people that have a, a more visceral connection with you, that more radical connection, if you could actually quantify that, it's, everyone is better off. The donors are better off and you're better off. The lifetime value is 15 to 16 times higher. And so, um, you know, that's, that's from a, the data perspective. So, I mean, it exists. We live in an era where you can actually know the value of your database is not in how much it's worth from a wealth perspective. It's, that really says nothing about the value of your database. The value of your database is on the depth of connection and measuring that depth of connection. And so that's a, A fundamental shift for our industry it is literally flipping the pyramid Uh, and i'm guilty of this in years past i mean i'd have a prospect development person say oh our database is the most valuable commodity of this organization it's worth six billion dollars i'd argue today it's actually worth nothing if you can't measure the depth of connection that's in your database and so that's just a, a big fundamental shift you know for us to to really embrace and that's why corporations are so successful at understanding what you and I, you know, each of us are going to do almost on a daily basis. And they're targeting us with precision based on that.
1: And how they have us all on subscriptions. Yeah. <laughs> on <all these laughs> Seriously. Things, you know what I'm saying?
2: Yeah. yeah. So they can measure measure what you're paying attention to. And they've yeah. gotten really good at it. But the good news is mm. nonprofits can do the, the same thing. If you think next
3: step, like what the data begins to show you, as he talked about with some of my clients with whether we've had this level of analysis or not, I love it when they say, wow, it really begs the question, why do we do like this event and these seven things? It And, and they start, the light bulb starts going off in about what they have just been doing for, you know, 10 years, 15 years or 20 years. And kind of this ro- robotic kind of way of approaching engagement and what, whatever that might be. And that's a lot of fun because you start realigning you know, some of the efforts, even some of the dollars, I mean, just to be more effective and more efficient, because you start that you're you realize that you're focusing on those that are your believers going back and you start and, and when you start to see those early returns, not only that they're, they're going to stay with you, but they're really connected, the involvement's there, the interest is there. It's, it goes a long way in, you know, helping everybody get on board to the subtle or not so subtle change that's happening. But it I agree with Nathan, the data is the key. And We were asked on another podcast, what if you don't have that? I go back to it. We were talking about earlier, Becky, then do a survey. You know, about 12 years ago, we were working for a major university. I did not know Nathan at the time. We literally did a survey of their entire alumni base, simply asking questions about those themselves. And I'll give you an example. When we came and started breaking down the data, women 40 to 50 years of age who were like very, very low engagement, very low giving it was not rocket science to see in the response. So they put the number two thing, one and two things they cared about them the most, where it was their families and their wellness, their health. So we went to the university and said, with all due respect, you, you have 30 golf outings, mainly geared at men. Could you take one of them away and run a women's wellness forum? And they did it for female alumni only. It oversubscribed five times. We found a way to put that university and in, in the importance of the day-to-day life of their alumni at different stages of their lives, not with a one blanket approach that worked for them. It's just one small example of what you can learn by data like Nathan talked about, even just surveying.
2: Yeah. Getting to know your, your donors individually. I will say in the book that we have um, essentially the essential ingredients for that radical connection things like authenticity and transparency and vulnerability, you know, truly coming alongside donors arm in arm. And then we also have a framework that we've talked about, you know, um, essentially, if we, I was in a nonprofit today, um, this framework for how do you what what is the the varying degree of connection that someone has from they know you to the fact that they brag about you. And if you could measure that through a survey, we have a whole framework in the book for this that any nonprofit could essentially take. And if you knew that, if you knew where people stood um, on their degree of connection to you, not anything to do with their money, my gosh, like there's, there's the road to success. I mean, really those are the people that are going to go the distance with you.
0: And I just think having this mindset where you're practicing flexing that data is going to take you to the next level. And and Nathan, thank you for saying this for like twenty years. (laughs) You've been beating this drum (laughs) for twenty years that we don't we don't as a sector have a practice of looking at it and even interpreting and flexing it. That's what you take to your board, and it's not about how many followers you have on Facebook or TikTok. It's about how engaged they are. How much are they asking? questions and getting involved and taking your information and activating on it so I think you guys are in on to all the things right here thank you for sharing that story Brian I, I'm not shocked at all that women's uh, event was was as successful as it is and we just think that storytelling is such a heartbeat not only of this moment I mean you talk about it in your book so I want to pitch this question to both of you I want to know about a story Um, of philanthropy that has really changed you and your life and stuck with you. It doesn't have to be the biggest gift. It doesn't have to be the shiniest gift. But I want to start with you, Brian. What do you think?
3: Yeah, uh, that's a great question. Um, When I was, I'm the youngest of nine kids. And so um, uh, when I was, I think, something like seventh, eighth grade, sixth, seventh, eighth grade, my dad was at the time chairing where I went and where he went, St. John's University in New York City, uh, their first ever capital campaign. So, like, rewind the clock. I was ten, eleven, twelve years old, sitting, like, having probably just eaten like pizza, or whatever. And he's in the den on a phone call, and I was picking up. Um, he hangs up. I'm like, "Did you just ask somebody for money?" For money? And he was like, "Yeah, we're raising fifty million at St. John." And I look back now. I mean, I literally tell people I had a front row seat to capo campaigning since I was like, you know, playing wiffle <laughs> ball in the backyard, and I didn't even know it. Um, and he was someone. He and my mom are so involved in boards and, you know, there was nine of us, but somehow they drilled it into us that there's a much bigger society in a world outside of ourselves, even though there was a lot of us that we had to make sure we were, you know, being mindful of and helpful to, but seeing him and then actually seeing him do it again, as I was going into St. John's myself and I ended up putting my hand up to go into the development office. And it, so it's a very, very personal story that I had a front row seat to a capital campaign when I didn't even know what it was with my dad Doing that and it literally sent me on this chart the path that I've been on for more than twenty years, but twenty three or twenty two years of changing our world.
0: Excellent and incredible. I cannot even imagine. So Nathan, what about you? Is there one that sticks out to you?
2: Gosh, it, there's always one that sticks out. I you know I spent twenty years fundraising, but I did my first fundraiser when I was eight years old. I ended up in the local newspaper, you know, um, for I, I, I so it's been a big part of our life. We grew up very poor, but we always gave back. Then we, you know, from Habitat to Humanity, but we were always recipients of charity. We always gave back. I will say, when I started formally in um, nonprofit, I was at the Boys and Girls Club at a, a local Boys and Girls Club here, had been around 50 years, kind of dilapidated building. Um, it was a few weeks after I, I started, I was a board member and then agreed to step in kind of interim. You know, seven years later, you look back, but I showed up one day and, and there was a, a kid sleeping on the porch. His mom was a drug addict. He was a type one diabetic. He was a, an unbelievable scholar um, in in his freshman year, taking trigonometry in Japanese and um, sleeping on the porch. He had nowhere to go. you know. And for me, man, I still like, if you ask me what my story, I'd like go back to that moment where I showed up for work at like 7am and there's this kid sleeping on the porch, the boys and girls though, because there's no other place to go. The value that nonprofits you know the the role that they play in everyday society. It's hard work. There's so much admiration. It's a noble profession, but man, that um, it's real. Like it's real. And so, like you think about those moments, and you're like, man, to be a part of that in any way is just so special.
0: And we don't want it to go away. You know, that's what I think about. We got to yeah. hold on to that and make sure that they're there, so that kids have a place to go. I mean, that's a great metaphor.
1: Well, Nathan, I want to give you one chance because I know we just talked a lot about believers in this conversation and y'all put this in the book. So I've got to just give you a chance to, to shout out our mutual love for farming project. <laughs> and I I love just how you we threaded that Farm and Lake. talked about your family's involvement too. So just tell a little piece of that. Cause I think that's a believer in action um, of just how you show up to support this.
2: It's work. You know, it, I mean, it is probably the most pure example of radical connection that I can, I can name. Like I, it's hard it it there's not a day goes by where i don't brag about what farmlink the farmlink project is doing i mean they've they've moved 85 million pounds of food since april 2020 from a bunch of college students that frankly were just fed up with a broken system you know they uh they didn't take no for an answer and and if you could build a new nonprofit without all the baggage and you could focus on things like retention and you could have a board that was aligned from day one, like imagine what you could do. And that's what they're doing. I mean, and so it's just an amazing story. Brian's gotten to know them. Um, I know you guys have gotten to know them. I mean, those are the individuals that give me hope um, because they're doing it. They won't take no for an answer and they're creative, you know, and, and there's this aspect that they've only just begun. You know, so there is reason to hope you know there's reason that you know younger generations are taking their role in society seriously, and they're not going to be burdened down by like what doesn't work and what you know what was been tried before and didn't work the first time. So I love it they're an incredible group. Farming project is um, is, I think, an example of what the next generation nonprofit looks like.
0: I agree and I got to throw one thing in there for FarmLink cuz uh, if you are somebody who subscribes to this abundance mindset and this and this concept of trying things differently I think there has to be a level of radical resiliency and FarmLink was rejected over by 200 farmers Before they actually got a farmer to say, okay, we'll try this out. How many times have you been rejected as a fundraiser? 200 times and you keep going back. I think you have to have that level of ridiculous resiliency. And now we just got an email yesterday. They're at 100 millionth pound of food already. So proud of you, Aiden and Ben. Way to go. Guys, you know, we end all of our conversations around here with a one good thing. I'm dying to know in the scope of the macro level that we've been sitting in today, how do you bring it all the way down and talk about one good thing that people could take away from this conversation today? Nathan, I'm going to start with you.
2: I mean, you know, for me, I I, I knew you were going to ask this question, so I had time to reflect on it, you know? And for me, the one good thing is one good thing you know, our, for all, you know, the book, for what it does is to, to drive some conversation. It, it the answer is very simple. It, it means showing up every day and doing one good thing. And honestly, that can be paying for a meal. It could be paying. It, it could be talking to a stranger. It could be returning a shopping cart, something that makes this world a better place for us all to live in. And, you know, the paradox of generosity is the more you do, the the better you feel, and the more you get back. And so that's just the encouragement It's just one good thing. And, uh, and whatever that is to you, and then, you know, do it tomorrow and do it the next day and do it the next day because generosity is caught, not taught. So if we all do this, you know, it can make a powerful impact.
0: Awesome. What about you, Brian? Yeah,
3: I would say the term I use a lot internally in changing our world is just, look, we have to be students of the industry. So I think in this conversation is a great example of how fast things are moving and how we need to make sure we're you know thinking about things the right way. So I would the one good thing I would encourage everybody is to constantly you know, as individuals, if they're development directors, they're working in a nonprofit, you know, constantly be pushing the envelope, just learning um, and keep, keep the conversation going. I mean, keep challenging sort of the, the status quo within your not-for-profit of, because as we talked about, so much can be learned from the data. And I agree with you, Becky, that our sector has struggled with getting their understanding of that and their arms around that. So just to be students, be curious, keep pushing and keep working. And your resiliency common is spot on as well.
1: I mean, fellas, I feel the mutual just hope for the sector, but just so much value alignment in this conversation. I know our community is just going to really feel buoyed by this today. Point us to where we can find the book. I mean, we were t- laughing beforehand, but literally, if you're in New York, it is taking over the front of Barnes and Noble on Fifth Avenue. Fifth Avenue. Yeah. Tell us all the ways you can get the book if you can't make it to Fifth Avenue, and then how to connect with you guys online where you show up and how to connect.
2: So a couple of different ways we. Um we have a website so you go to generositycrisis.com or chapellecrimens Chappelle chapelle com. either way it goes to the same place Gener- generositycrisis.com is a little easier easier to remember uh, of course it's on amazon and and uh we're just so honored because the outpouring um of support from of the community corporate community and the nonprofit community the whole csr and the esp community it's like it's just i don't know it just it's been overwhelming and humbling Um, so yeah. And then of course, um, I know Brian and I both are, are pretty active on LinkedIn. And so to find us on LinkedIn, we love connecting with people. And, um, and if we're in your area, we'll grab a cup of coffee and do one good thing together.
0: Well, I think the reaction is so strong to this book because we're all so proud and grateful that you stood up and said it. If you're listening to this podcast you are a different kind of thinker. You're a different kind of learner. We're looking to you to be those warriors that usher in this new era of innovation, of data, of radical connection. I absolutely think it can be done. This community is proof that it's possible. So lean into this, talk to your leaders, and just know we're rooting for you because there is not only hope, there is tremendous promise and success in this for radical transformation. Thank you guys so much.
2: You're awesome. We love you guys so much. Thank you for all the love that you. you pour into the world.
0: Oh, it's our joy. Thank you both Great rooting both for, you. for you. Thank
2: you.
3: Yeah. Thanks
0: for having us. Hey
2: friends. Thanks so much for being here. Did you know we create a landing page for each podcast episode with helpful links, freebies, and even shareable graphics? Be sure to check it out at the link in this episode's description. You probably hear it in our voices, but we love connecting you with the most innovative people to help you achieve more for your mission than ever before. We'd love for you to join our good community. It's free and you can think of it as the after party to each podcast episode. You can sign up today at weareforgood.com backslash hello. One more thing. If you loved what you heard today, would you mind leaving us a podcast rating and review? It means the world to us and your support helps more people find our community. Thanks, friends. I'm our producer, Julie Comfer, and our theme song is Sunray by Remy Borsboom.